Welcome to Radio Contra, the podcast of AmericanPartisan.org and hosted by me, the Commandante of the Mossy Oak Militia. And today I've got a really incredible guest, a real patriot that's out there. Checked out his sub stack. He's an amazing guy running for Congress in the 36th Congressional District out there for all of you in West L.A. He is one of your own, a patriot, a fighter, and an incredible guy all around, software engineer extraordinaire, you name it, Matt Jaswelle. What's up, brother? Hey, Scout. It's great to be on your show. Thank you for having me. Yeah, man. So you are an America First MAGA patriot who has stepped up to the plate you know, in in a, a a district that I I would say a lot of patriots, a lot of Americans out there, you know, a, a lot of folks that are even in California, a lot of your fellow patriots would say, you know, like it's pretty much hopeless. The the fight out there is hopeless. Um, you know, California is just this you just completely taken over by the communists. You've got Garcetti. You've got, you know, the the entire uh, machine in Sacramento. You've got San Francisco and big tech and everything that's just run roughshod over anybody who's an America first patriot out there. And then you're stepping up. You step up to the plate um, and checking out some of your work over on your Substack, man. I think, you know, you you are exactly the face of a new generation of conservatives out there and a new generation of patriots that are saying, no, the fight is not lost. It is not lost by a long shot. And we're going to get out there and we're going to fight. And most importantly, you are taking the fight to Ted Lieu, who, you know, we were joking about just before we got on air, Ted Lieu being one of the most outspoken critics of Donald Trump and, and really his Twitter throughout the entire Trump presidency was a goldmine of stupid. So, you know, with all of that said, brother, from the very beginning, tell us a little bit about yourself. What got you into politics and, and really what makes you tick? Sure. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for the introduction. Um, so I'm 33 years old. Uh, I live in Santa Monica, California. I was born in New Jersey to kind of a typical upper middle class Democrat family. Um, I lived in New York City for several years in my early 20s and moved to Los Angeles in 2013. So I've, I've been here since then. Um, when the pandemic hit, I was a software engineer in Santa Monica. And, you know, although I'd voted for Trump in 2016, and it was actually the first election that I ever voted in, I wasn't really political. I wouldn't say that I was naive, but I didn't have a strong idea of what was going on. Uh, and in particular, I didn't realize how dishonest the media was quite yet. Um, but so I was kind of floating around, you know, more or less apolitical, um, 
And then when the lockdowns hit in early 2020, I started to get a strong sense that something wasn't quite right. Like when my boss told me, uh, I was working at a small startup at the time. And when my boss told me that we were gonna be working from home, uh, you know, that people weren't gonna be coming into the office anymore, I, I started to feel, well, wow, okay, this, this doesn't feel right. Um, and then, uh, so, so that, that feeling continued to grow over the next few months. And then after a few months of working from homes, so this is now, I guess, late May, uh, the George Floyd riots erupted and the office building that we'd been working out of before the lockdown was actually burned. Um, you know, it was arson. People were throwing Molotov cocktails and windows and things like that. Uh, and the building was actually rendered uninhabitable. So that was a real kind of shock to my system and a wake up call for me. And I started spending a lot of time uh, at that point researching politics, uh, trying to figure out what was going on. And I just I found I increasingly could not focus on writing code anymore. So that was uh, the main thing that drove me out of that job. Um, at this point, I started to kind of become aware of, of you know, the, the greater um, the plan, you know, that you could say the Great Reset, the overall plan for global government. Uh, you call it a communist takeover of the United States. Um, and I started paying a lot more attention to what Trump had been up to in the White House. Uh, so I, you know, started. I continued to to get into politics and and uh, was seeking out alternative sources of information as I realized just how corrupt the uh, the mainstream media was, the the corporate controlled media. Um, and I voted for Trump again in 2020. And I was extremely concerned when I saw the election obviously stolen right in front of our eyes. Um, at this point, I think we're starting to see that you know maybe that was. You know, maybe he deliberately let Biden take the White House uh, or maybe it was, you know, a plan B or something like that. And, I, you know, I think we might still be on track in a broader sense. But at the time, I was concerned that all hope was lost for America. Um, so at that time, as I realized the scope of the evil that was going on all around us, I, I started to actually feel God drawing me in uh, and pulling me closer to him, even though I'd never really been a believer up until that point. Um and so that's, you know, that's something that's continued to this day, uh, but it started probably about midway through 2020 when I, I just realized, you know, that there was this great evil going on. Um, can fast forwarding a, a little bit. So I was in D.C. for January 6th. I, uh, I saw Trump speak at the Ellipse, but I did not go to the Capitol. But being in town that day, it was pretty clear that uh, and then seeing how the media covered it afterwards, I saw firsthand how deceptive and mendacious the the media coverage was uh and they were covering this overwhelmingly peaceful event as a violent insurrection against the government of the united states and then the second impeachment of president trump that followed that was one of the most outrageous things i've ever seen in my life so i started to get disgusted with both political parties and the entire kind of political system um after january 6th i spent a little more time traveling the country uh, and eventually returned to california to help with the uh the recall effort of governor newsom which was gaining steam at the time. So I spent a few months uh, driving a van around with political messages on it and got quite a bit of attention uh, for doing that. Uh, I logged several thousand miles as I drove around the state. And you'll have a hard time convincing me that a fair count of the votes in that election wouldn't have ousted him. Uh, you know, I, I strongly suspect they, they rigged the election the same way we saw the 2020 election rigged, but so he's still in office. Um, and that was when I started thinking, OK, I'm going to have to step up even more and you know, figure out a way to, to you know, make a stand. 
So even though I'm still pretty skeptical about the integrity of the elections here in California, I decided I was going to make a run for office. Uh, what else can yeah, what else can you do? Just throw in the towel? Right. Um, right. You know, and and with all of that, you know, it, you know, this it, what an incredible story. And I think it's really inspiring and it, it's important to point out what you're getting at is, is that everybody's going to tell you that it's pointless. Everybody's going to tell you that, you know, oh, you, you know, you, you're never going to fight the machine. You're never going to beat it or whatever. So what do you do? Do you lay down and take it or do you stand up? Do you inspire everybody else around you? Because if it, if it is not us, who else is it going to be? Right. Uh, you know, and what what's America going to be without California? I mean, a lot of people have kind of written off California like, oh, it's just let, let the commies have it. <laughs> um, and, you know, I, I don't really see a bright future for America without a bright future for California. No, I agree completely. And and it's you know, it, it's it's a sad state of affairs out there because um for a lot of reasons beyond just the political, I think the, the political might be uh, one aspect of it. But, you know, when I had uh, Diana Ploss on and she was saying similar things, very, very similar things about Massachusetts. And uh, of course, she's running for governor out there on the America First platform as well. And when when you look at the dichotomy of wealth, when you look at the the startling wealth gap, and that that's to borrow a phrase from the left, you know these are all talking points that they've made for all these years. Look at the wealth gap and the wage gap and all the you know the the economic terms, right? But California is a is a very stark example of that of how the elites continue to enrich themselves off of outsourcing labor somewhere else. Meanwhile, everybody else at the grassroots level, at the ground level, continues to get even more poorer. In California, for anybody who's not familiar with the the, the uh, social topography out there, will know w- once you get out there that there is a very stark contrast between those who are wealthy and those who aren't. Yeah, that, that's absolutely right. I mean, I've, I've done a fair bit of traveling both in the United States and abroad, and the the contrast between rich and poor, the haves and the haves not, have-nots in California generally, and you know, especially in Los Angeles and San Francisco and, and San Diego, um, it's as stark as you're going to find anywhere in the world, I think. Um, you know, you have multi-million dollar mansions and, you know, the the who's who of the world uh, living side by side with tent cities and uh, just all kinds of you know the really most severe degradation that you can imagine. Yeah, I mean it, it's it's stark and and you see this in a lot of areas um, where you know obviously the tech sector is huge in California. The tech sector is huge in the Northeast as well, and it, it seems like it's a recurring theme everywhere that you see people who and, and it's not just the tech sector, but pe- when you have corporations that come in that leverage that much power, they create a stark dichotomy between the haves and the have-nots. That correlates into politics, and the great irony is is that the the uh, the politics 
or the politicians rather who reflect Marxist ideas, uh, who reflect, you know, living in this global uh, economy, so to speak, they always reinforce these notions. They always create these same conditions over and over again. And I think that it's very ironic that, you know, you have most of the people who inhabit Twitter and most of the people who inhabit Reddit and these these spaces that are that are really just leftist bastions of of uh, uh, circular thought, they're really only uh, standing in irony of themselves and of their own ideas. And I think that it's it's very very ironic. Um, specifically, going back to to something else that you said, you know, when when you had the politics bug bite you and you say, you know, we really have to get out there. We have to get that message out there. What what has been the response that you've seen in California at the grassroots level? That's a great question. I mean, I, I think that the so a lot of outside observers, you know, especially I think there's an impression among people in, you know, in what you would say is red states or conservative areas that California has this uniformity of opinion that everybody here is, uh, you know, just a crazy leftist or bleeding heart liberal, uh, that there are no conservatives. Um, and I, you know, I, I think that's not true at all. We have a great, uh, a great patriot community here. There are a lot of great patriotic Americans, a lot of Christians, um, and a lot of people who are absolutely fed up. And, you know, we've had that for a while, but I think the um, pe- people are growing more fed up recently because a lot of these these situations really have come to such an extreme point lately. Like there's always been homelessness in California, but it is out of control lately. The, you know, the tent cities and, um, you know, the drug use on the streets and things like that is absolutely out of control. And so we're at a point where, so not only do you have those communities that, you know, you, you might think of as as traditionally more conservative, but also I think a lot of the people uh, broadly on the left are starting to really feel like there's something wrong. Um, you know, progressives are famous for being able to avoid the worst consequences of their own bad policies. And don't get me wrong, I, I think a lot of them are well-intentioned, like, you know, people see that housing is expensive, so they think rent control is a good way to help, uh, when in reality, that just creates a bifurcated housing market. Right. Um, and, and yeah, it makes, makes rents, you know, it lowers the supply of housing and makes rents higher for everybody, but you can understand the kind of good intention of it. Um, but we're now at a point where even the wealthy progressives are unable to avoid the consequences of the situation that they've created. Uh, the homelessness is just at such an extreme point that it impacts everybody and it is impossible to ignore. Um, so I think that's been a big, a big wake up call. So when I'm, you know, when I'm out there kind of with this message or, you know, with some perspectives, with some ideas that a lot of these people might not have considered before, I, I think they're at a point, you know, you might, you might call it a breaking point or a rock bottom where people are willing to, to hear this, whereas they might not have been a few years ago. They might have been able to kind of close their eyes and hum to themselves and imagine that everything's okay. I agree completely. I, I you know, I, I'm sitting here nodding my head because these are all things that, you know, I've pointed out and, um, you know, in the past and hearing somebody who's running for office and, and is saying the same things, you know, the situation is never hopeless. Now, coming up as a Democrat in New Jersey and finding yourself in the tech sector out in California, 
you know, you came to an awakening. You came to a point where you started to realize talking about, you know, when uh, going back to, to you know, your introduction, the media is lying to us. And I think that, you know, having having someone who came up as a as a Democrat and kind of on the other side of the fence and seeing, you know, that we can't turn a blind eye to a lot of these same social issues. But at the same time, there's a better answer than what we've been offered or what we've been traditionally told all these years. And I think that, that you're a big part of that. What what was it if you can if you can even point to one thing, what was it that really triggered the very first thing that really triggered the wake up call that the media is lying, that, you know, mainstream media is only there to enrich itself and, and is on part of this power elite. What was it out there? What what was your first thing that was like, man, the world is not all all put together the way they tell us it is? That's a great question. Um, so I would say the so this is before I really started to even understand just how bad the media was. But the first inklings that I got that, um, you know, things weren't quite as I'd been told as a, a child, I guess you could say, was this was actually before I moved to California. When I was living in New York City, I noticed that, you know, I kind of characterized it as the liberals on the Upper West Side would always vote to tax themselves more in order to try to alleviate social problems, but they wouldn't ever go north of, you know, 96th or 125th Street on the train and actually get involved in those communities and try to change things directly. They kind of pay their pay their guilt tax uh, and expect the government to sort it out for them. And that was when I started to see, you know, you'd say the hypocrisy or the uh, the selfishness inherent in, in that attitude. Um, but then it wasn't for a few years more and I'll be honest, I didn't consume a lot of news. And that was one of the reasons why, you know, I was always focused on other things. And so not consuming too much news was maybe one of the reasons why the uh, revelation of how corrupt the media is eluded me for a little while longer. But I would say the first big clue was when I was, so this was in 2016 now, and I'm living in, uh, you know, I'm living in LA at this point. And I'd started to so Donald Trump was starting to come up through the the Republican primaries and and you know people were starting to report on him and, and looking like his candidacy was something his people treated it as kind of a joke at first like oh yeah he's you know he's going to be eliminated uh, you know don't don't pay too much attention to him this is just a blip on the radar and then it became increasingly clear that it wasn't just a blip on the radar uh, and I didn't have a whole lot of trust in any of the the Democrat candidates at the time especially frontrunner Hillary Clinton. Um, so I started to uh, kind of gravitate towards him and I'd never, you know, I'd never voted Republican. I wasn't registered Republican. I'd actually never voted before 2016. Um, but so this was, you know, this was a transition for me. Um, but I started to investigate and, and you know, I heard his message and then I, I would see just the kind of unhinged things that people would say about him. Uh, I would see the the straight up distortions, the the lies, you know, misrepresentations of things that he had said, the disingenuous arguments that people would make. Um, and I started getting into debates on social media with people in my circle and, you know, the, the occasional stranger. Um, and I would just see that, you know, if I went and researched things and actually did some digging, I would find facts that were different than what, you know, what would be thrown at me in arguments. Uh, and, you know, when people would reply to me with a headline 
uh, or you know, a, a story that would supposedly refute something that I was saying, I started to understand that if you scratch the surface a little bit more and you do some digging, you're going to find inconsistencies. You're going to find there's something more to the story. Uh, and that became a recurring theme all throughout Trump's presidency. Although I, I didn't, after the election, I kind of went back to sleep for a few more years uh, and didn't start digging deeply again until my work life was interrupted by the pandemic. But you know, when I did and I started looking at things that people were saying about the pandemic and, and arguments that they were making about Trump and you know, then I looked into the first impeachment and things like that. And I just realized uh, you do some digging and it's it's not what they say it is. Yep. Well, they, they're constantly lying to us. And, you know, we, we were told that Trump was a, a Russian plant this entire time, which was ridiculous on its face. Anybody who has uh, literally any familiarity with the intelligence community here in America knew that that this was 90 percent BS, um, you know, and, and it just went from there. I mean, and and I think that the, the Mockingbird media really got exposed. A lot of other mainstream conservatives really got exposed, especially in the early days of of the Trump presidency. I know there were a number of uh, well-known media pundits, talk radio figures who, you know, personally, I was turned off by. Uh, immediately. And just like you said, the very beginning, I I figured that that Trump was a ringer. He was a ringer candidate that, that the Democrats had put up, uh, you know, knowing his ties to the Clintons and political machine and everything else. And really, you know, of, of my own admission, kind of being ignorant of the facts with him, uh, you know, and, and kind of his history, because, you know, he, was he perfect? Absolutely not. Uh, but at the same time, who else is fighting for America? Who else is, is fighting for, you know, you and I and everybody else in, in that audience out there who are genuine Americans who want America to succeed, who want all of us to succeed out there? And uh, but, you know, it was really, really important because it paves the way for politicians like yourself who are not traditional politicians. You know, you don't have a political background. But you are jumping in the ring and, and you are taking on a guy who is a sock puppet for the power elite that has infested itself out there in California. And, um, you know, getting engaged in the political process, you know, you, you had that awakening, you had that calling to get out there and do that and really, uh, you know, taking up the torch of liberty as well as becoming a Christian. And what led you to that? Um, I mean, as far as, you know, specifically becoming a Christian, I mean, I just, when I first started to understand the magnitude of what was going on with the pandemic, um, because at first, you know, I'll admit, I, I didn't see it. And it sounds like um, with your background, you probably recognize a lot of the trickery and deception that was going on a lot more, a lot more quickly than I did. Um, you know, oh, your yeah. comments about the intelligence agencies, it sounds like you, you saw through it pretty quickly. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, I just had a gut feeling, and my gut feeling turned out to be right, but it's a, it was a big leap from my lack of knowledge to being able to confidently argue in favor of that gut feeling. Um, so that, that took a while. Um, but so once I understood kind of what was going on, I just it just hit me like a punch in the stomach. You know, wow, that's true evil. 
um, to yeah. be, you know, manipulating people through through fear, fear of death, fear of disease, um, you know, blatantly propagandizing and lying. And then I understood, you know, it was um, aimed at. Well, at first, I, you know, it was pretty clear to see with the timing that it was aimed at taking out Trump. Um, right. And especially with the narrative, you know, the way the narrative was mobilized against him. Um, and, you know, then I saw the changes to the voting, uh, you know, I shouldn't even say changes to the voting laws. They just kind of straight up, you know, ignored the voting laws in many cases or changed them by executive edict uh, in violation of the Constitution. And once I saw that, and that was coupled with the the rioting, the unrest on the streets, you know, the the uh, violent BLM and, and Antifa things that uh, were going on, <laughs> it all just came into came into clarity for me. And I was just sitting there. I remember one day, just I put my my head in my hands, and I was just wow, there is true evil to an extent that I hadn't realized before. And so I kind of looked down, and I'm like, wow, well that that's real. And then I look up <laughs> and I'm starting to think, well, you know, geez, <laughs> maybe God's real too. Uh, even though I hadn't really seen his hand in my life up until that point, or, you know, at least I, I, I thought I hadn't, it hadn't been evident to me. Um, then from that point on, kind of once I had that realization, I started to feel uh, that hand guiding me along. Like I, I, I felt like I was being kind of guided, protected. I started to feel what you might call the Holy Spirit. Um, Amen, brother. Yeah, and that, you know, at that point, like once you start feeling that in your life, it's, you know, <laughs> that's a direct experience. Um, it is. It is. Yeah. And, and, you know, you when when that begins, when, when you feel that, when you feel that guidance into a particular field, you're pushed into it. And, you know, I, I know for myself, I, I can speak on that directly when you try and resist that push, when you say, you know, oh, well, I, I'm not so sure I'm, I'm just going to, uh, you know, continue on the path that I'm on and, and, you know, not answer that call. You get smacked in the face with it over and over again. And that door that shuts, you know, they, the, the saying is every time one door shuts, another one opens. And I firmly believe that every time the Lord shuts one door, another one is absolutely going to open. But if you try and open it, that door that just shut, it's going to get slammed in your face. You can't ignore that path that you're on. You know, this this path of, of the success of this podcast and website and training folks. And, you know, I just came off of a week of training. The biggest class that I have ever taught. Um, had I had the most people, I had to turn away people from a class that I did not expect to have more than 15 in or so. I had well over double that number for an entire week. These were people who, who had taken off of work for an entire week, braving cold, wet conditions, living off grid, and were out there to learn tactical communications and to learn signals intelligence. And, you know, Patriots across this country are waking up. And when you feel that divine guidance, when you feel that spirit behind you that's propelling you, you can't turn it down and you can't turn it away. And you you, you definitely cannot ignore it. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Uh, it sounds like you're being blessed by uh, 
you know, walking down the path that God has, has put out for you, which is great. And I know, um, in my own experience, you know, I've had a lot of doubts about this, especially knowing what a difficult race it is. And, um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, a, a huge, uh, underdog, you might say. So I've thought about quitting more than once, but I started getting signs that, you know, God, this was what he wanted me to do. And every time I tried to run away, something would pull me back into the game. Uh, and I eventually found my way to an awesome church in Santa Monica where I didn't know this when I made my way to the church. And I, I only found out afterwards, um, like after I'd started going, but the senior pastor actually ran for Congress twice in the eighties in the same district that I'm running in. Uh, you know, it's changed numbers and boundaries somewhat over, over time, but it's, it's pretty much the same district. Um, and actually a lot of the members of the community in that church are still around. Like they remember helping him with his campaign back in the eighties. So that was a huge sign to me that, uh, you know, I was on a path that God had, had kind of set out for me. And the pastor even told me, um, <laughs> you know, he said, if God tells you to do something and you're sure it's God and you don't do it, you're probably not going to like the outcome. Yep. And when Amen. he said that to me, I was just, yeah, I was just floored. Amen. <laughs> uh, so, you know, I, I can't back out now. <laughs> well, you know, and, and here's the thing. What are you afraid of? Exactly. What are you afraid of? Or, or, so we know, we know walking into battle, we know, you know, just, just as Gideon knew, he's sitting here and he's saying, you know, we, we're, we're going to get absolutely destroyed. You know, I, so you want me to take 300 of, of my men of the Lord's choosing and take them down to a creek. You know, uh, uh, out of my entire army, the guys who who get down and, and lap up water in a particular way. And, and that's going to be my army, you know, and, and this this. But be not afraid. Only believe. And, you know, we, we all are, are familiar with the story of Gideon and, and how that battle worked out. So what are you afraid of by getting out there, by having your voice just by you running against you know, Ted Lieu, who is is a Democratic socialist sock puppet. That's what this guy is. And by you getting out there and you running against him and you saying, you know, hey, I, I'm a voice of American patriotism. I am a voice of truth. I am a voice of justice. And I am a voice, most importantly, of accountability to the people of this great nation. And you believe that. You believe that truly in your heart and it's coming out, you know, and, and that ought to be that that is an inspiring call to Christian patriots of this nation everywhere that it doesn't matter. You get out there and you do the absolute best you can because we are going to win this thing. So if, if you get out there and you don't win an election because you know that they have stacked the deck, they've rigged the game. They, you know, they, the the voting machines are fraudulent. All of this stuff that Donald Trump, especially in the 2020 election, pointed out in vibrant colors. Even though you see all that, you didn't lose. You didn't lose because look at how many people you inspired behind you to come up. And we're going to win. We're going to come out on top of this, out on the other side, because we are the voice of truth. We are the voice of justice. Uh, absolutely. I mean, God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. And if God is with us, who can be against us? Amen. Amen. Well, 
shifting gears a little bit because this is something that is on everybody's mind right now. Uh, obviously, current events this is the first podcast that I've done um, in you know uh, almost two weeks now, week and a half or so. And of course, I'll, I'll come right out and say it. I called it wrong. Um, you know, and and I'm going to be touching on this quite a bit more uh, when when I do a, a breakdown on on what's going on with Ukraine specifically. But I didn't my own assessment. So you know, when when we make an assessment, whether it is uh, from an intelligence standpoint or or really any other threat model that that we're looking at something and figuring out what what the threat is. You break it down into a dichotomy. What is the likely course of action or the MLCOA, most likely course of action, and the MDCOA, what is the most dangerous course of action of an adversary? And seeing the military build up in Belarus and, and on the border of Ukraine, you know, MLCOA most likely because there were talks between Zelensky and Putin. Zelensky, it seemed like at the time he was, at least at first, was trying to diffuse the situation a bit. Um, you know, Putin was as well. And it, it, what it really looked like as the pieces were moving on the chessboard was that, or, or really maybe more appropriately, the big giant game of risk is that, that there wasn't going to be an invasion, but rather bolstering of allies because, you know, our intelligence community, the State Department, um, we had been playing in, in their backyard that we, we just came off of two failed color revolutions in the region, uh, Belarus in 2020, and then most recent, uh, most recently in Kazakhstan. And, you know, the, the Russian military was, was called in, in both of those cases to bolster their allies against expansion of NATO and, uh, kind of how the, the great game is breaking down. Well, while I was out teaching, they of course did invade. Um, and you know, it, it began with, with kind of a, a geopolitical legal challenge and then grew into a larger invasion. Of course, we've got, um, you know, the, the lines are kind of stabilizing at this point. I know the, the fighting picked up today as of, uh, 28 February, uh, 2022, the, the fighting has picked up quite a bit. And of course, um, as I was coming back from class in Tennessee, I saw uh, some of the headlines of, of Putin moving his nuclear readiness forces up to their equivalent of DEFCON 2, which th this stuff is pretty serious. One of the things that has been brought up constantly by our political leaders in, in Washington, you know, kind of the swamp creatures, is uh, it particularly one of one of the interviews that I heard was Senator Mark Warner from Virginia, who's a Democrat, longtime deep state guy, and essentially saying that even if so much as a red light gets knocked out, that uh, and it looks like it was a cyber attack, then that's going to be considered an Article Five uh, declaration of war. And with your background as a software engineer, as, you know, having all of these tools in your toolbox, cybersecurity has been a, a perennial thing that, that I consider to be a big gap in our overall national defense plan. 
Talk me through real quick what what the threat is, kind of sift the the truth from the hyperbole. We know that the media is really ginning this up. The media was really ginning up war with Russia, and and they still are uh, as of right now. So talk me up a little bit about what you see, what your assessment is, your your professional assessment, having a, a mountain of experience in this field, and what we can expect as this thing progresses? Well, as far as what to expect, I mean, I'll I'll admit I'm having as hard a time reading the tea leaves as anybody. There's so much disinformation going on right now. Um, and then I think w- one of the things about cyber attacks that makes things difficult is that I think it's really hard to properly attribute and it's so easy to false flag. Um, so, you know, I think what we're seeing now there's definitely a convergence of of narratives. I know, you know, people have been talking about the the cyber pandemic. Um, you know, Klaus Schwab has warned us that a cyber pandemic is going to come and it's going to be worse than the COVID pandemic. Um, and then, you know, I know uh, you and I both know Brendan O'Connell, um, and he's talked a lot about this this threat. Yep. Um, and the extent to which. Uh, Israel in particular has actually been infiltrated by Russia uh, at the highest levels, and Israel has backdoors into all our critical infrastructure, uh, you know, hardware backdoors and and software backdoors and whatnot. Um, So, you know, knowing that that's in play, and then, you know, I've I've seen some other headlines indicating that, um, you know, I I saw something about uh, uh, wanting Israel to broker negotiations now between um, Ukraine and Russia. So I see them being brought into the fold and I, you know, my head's spinning as, as much as anybody. Um, oh, and then of course you've got the Q people who are now saying, you know, especially with, um, you know, truth social that's just launched. I think a lot of them are anticipating a communication blackout. Uh, you know, that kind of fits their narrative. So, and what is, you you know, and what is Q? Uh, (laughs) I still have questions. (laughs) Yeah. I still have questions about that. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it, and I mean, not not to pop anybody's bubble on the whole Q thing, but, you know, it, that that was a giant disinformation campaign. I mean, it, Operation Trust, it had all of the hallmarks of Operation Trust. It, it um, I don't know that that was how I read it from the beginning. Um, I think it was for a lot of people, it was something that they wanted to believe. Uh, it, you know, and, and it's really easy to fall into the trap of believing that, you know, oh, I don't have to do any heavy lifting, that there's this magic force that's just going to materialize out of nowhere and reset everything. And it's going to be awesome. Well, there is going to be a reset. <laughs> they're telling you that they're going to do this, but it ain't the reset that you want. The Klaus Schwab, the IMF, the Davos, you know, Bilderberg. All of that, that you know, it, it's all entities of the same evil. Yeah, well, and I think that's what's dangerous about um, about the Q narrative as well, because now you have all these people who, you know, if the lights go out, they're going to be sitting there thinking it's a good thing and the, the good guys are in charge, uh, you know, to the extent that a term like good guys makes, makes sense in a complicated situation like this. Um, but, you know, so... Uh, that just muddies the waters even more, I think. Um, and it makes it really difficult. You know, we, yeah, we have all these different narratives that are converging. It's the cyber pandemic, it's Q, it's the Russia-Ukraine conflict. Um, 
And yeah, I'm I'm having as hard a time as anybody reading the tea leaves right now. Yeah. Well, I will say, um, or or I'll ask rather, if you were on the other side of the fence, if you were um, you know, the 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 big cheese of the Russian cyber threat. And, you know, having, you know, for my end, knowing uh, people who have retired out of the Department of Defense and worked for uh, building cybersecurity infrastructure here in the States, they're all telling me, they're saying, do not dismiss the Russian threat of all of the, the cyber threats out there, the cyber warfare threats. The two that you really have to worry about. Number one on that list is Russia and number two is Israel. And, you know, they their cyber warfare capability in both of those instances are equally on par with one another as far as the threat that they they can pose to the world should they get backed into a corner. And that that's kind of their their cyber Samson option, so to speak. What it's really looking like is that that Russia is getting backed into that corner, possibly with the the crash of the ruble. China has uh, it was reported earlier today that that China stepped in and said, you know, they're talking about economic bailouts. Um, And of course, they countered back against Washington, saying that any sanction that you put on us is going to be viewed as an act of war, Um, you know, kind of a, a rebuttal to Senator Mark Warner's comments about the potential for cyber war. If you were on the other side of the fence, if you were a guy who was looking to uh, pick out targets of interest right now as as uh, a red cell team member, you know, I think that that would be an appropriate term. Uh, red cells or, or uh, security analysts that intentionally try to probe um, infrastructure and critical infrastructure of businesses and they're hired to do that. What would you do what would be your strategy if you were them that's a good question i mean i think on the one hand um that is a very dangerous kind of i think it's dangerous to escalate cyber attack uh, even in even rhetorically but certainly to to pull the trigger because you know i've got to imagine that the u.s has significant cyber capability against russia as well and uh, that could be, you know, enormously catastrophic for both countries. So I don't think that that's something that uh, any any world leader really wants to pull the trigger on. But that said, so when Vlad said, um, when when Putin said that, um, uh, what I, I believe if the, I forget, uh, what is it? In terms of intervening, here I have the, uh, there we go. So Putin warned other countries that any attempt to interfere in the situation with Ukraine would lead to, quote, consequences you have never seen, unquote. And a lot of people read that as, you know, uh, a threat of a nuclear attack or something like that. But I saw that and immediately thought cyber. So I'm, I'm sitting here thinking, you know, Putin's got his finger on some kind of, uh, you know, cyber kill switch. Uh, that's his, you know, trump card, so to speak, in the event that that uh, anything does, you know, goes too far against him. But again, I think, you know, that would definitely be a very catastrophic option. I, I think the threat is probably, I think it's more likely to threaten it than to actually do it. Uh, but as you say, if, if backed into a corner, and it certainly looks like things might be going that way with now a concentrated attack on the ruble and people calling for, uh, you know, openly calling for regime change. Uh, you know, a lot of voices in the West saying, oh, we need to, you know, Putin needs to be removed from power. 
and probably trying to drum up dissent among the Russian people uh, to you know create instability towards that end. He may get to the point where he feels like his back is against that wall and and we might see something happen. But I'm, I'm not sure. I don't have a great intuition as to what that would actually look like as it unfolds. Uh, whether it would be against civilian or military targets or, you know, what the extent of it would be in an initial blow, if it would be, you know, if the first thing that would come out would be a crippling blow or just kind of a warning shot. I, I'm, I'm not sure. Your guess is probably a lot better than mine, to be honest. Well, something that you brought up um, about regime change and and the the fomentation of, of artificial dissent, one of my sources uh, who was talking to me earlier today, uh, and we were just kind of uh, chit-chatting a little bit on a, in, in a back channel. Was the the strategy at least at the moment? And, and I saw some some disinformation that was put out um, that that was floating around some of the OSINT, open source intelligence channels. Um, was that Sergei Shogun is uh, who who is the Russian defense minister? Is you know th- this. At least they're they're the expected response that they got uh, was or the the expected response to the invasion was uh, it, it was a more severe pushback than what they had initially anticipated. And that Sergei Shorgan is kind of feeling the the majority of the heat for that in Moscow right now. And that some of the oligarchs and and of course, this is our media putting this out. That that the oligarchs that that are controlling some of the the various things, Gazprom being one of the the uh, top ones, is they're they're trying to prompt Shoigun to come out against Putin, and there's going to be this internal dissent that that's going to happen, and and it's going to kind of divide them. I think that it's very very far fetched to to say that. When I was told that, I. I looked at that, and, and this was earlier today, and this is what I told this person in response, was that I don't think that that's going to happen. And again, we're trusting, quote unquote, our intelligence on this, which is faulty at best. Uh, I think that it's faulty at best. And it is true that the invasion is not going quite the way that they expected it to. Um their their mechanized forces are not performing in at least the the way that they expected it th- that it was going to go. They're incurring a, a much higher casualty rate than I think that they had originally anticipated, and um, you know now they're experiencing kind of getting bogged down. They had a two day uh, stalling on the front, kind of just you know, stabilizing the lines and, and regrouping for the next attack. And we're going to see, I, I think that we're going to see something big in the next week. Um, the fighting is pushing the, 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 the bulk of their action is coming down into Kiev uh, from the North. They're pushing South. And of course you've got Belarusian forces that are joining in as well. And uh, Kazakhstan originally said that they weren't going to push in We'll see. I, I think that that's going to change because, you know, we're only a few months out from a failed color revolution that occurred there. And it's kind of all coming together now with with cyber warfare, just from your experience, what what are some of the things that we really need to be concerned about 
when it comes to cyber warfare, if they were going to go after civilian side targets? Um, I, I don't know that I have any special insight on that. Just, you know, I'm worried about the same things everybody is, um, you know, worried about power grids going down, worried about the chaos that would ensue from that, worried about people not being able to make financial transactions. Um, also, I think if the grid goes down, a lot of people who didn't think to uh, didn't think carefully enough about putting their money into cryptocurrency as a hedge against uh, uh, well, the hedge against both financial scenarios and against instability in the world. I think a lot of people will have a rude awakening when they realize that their cryptocurrency is essentially useless. Um, Amen to that. That's precious metals, man. Precious metals. Yeah, they're going to have a hard time taking your gold offline, huh? Yeah. You know, gold, gold and silver. And uh, we saw a huge spike, huge spike in uh, the price per ounce of both gold and silver. And, um, you know, it, it's crypto. I'm not against crypto at all. And and I got a lot of friends who are huge into crypto, but don't ignore the precious metals. None of them do. Uh, n- none of them have ignored precious metals because all of it is a, a larger hedge against the u.s dollar it, for all we know a month from now the u.s dollar could be where the ruble is right now yeah and i, I know uh you know it certainly seems like there's a well we know there, there's a deliberate effort to weaken the u.s dollar as well um with the uh the cryptocurrency I'm not against cryptocurrency either, but I think, you know, the problem is when people expect it to be things that it's not and do things that it can't do. And so when people start talking like it's this, you know, ultimate protection against, uh, you know, government corruption, for instance, no, I can think of at least a half dozen different ways where your cryptocurrency could be rendered either seized or, um, you know, rendered useless virtually overnight, whether it's an attack on the infrastructure, uh, like the actual uh, you know, mining infrastructure, the uh, you know attack on the power grid, whether it's uh, financial regulations that make it impossible to convert your cryptocurrency into fiat, which would probably collapse the transactional value of cryptocurrency overnight. Right. Um, yeah, there are all all these scenarios that I can think of that I'm not sure people are uh, sufficiently attuned to, and so that could get ugly if that happens because a lot of people who thought they were protected might find very quickly that they're not as protected as they thought they were and they don't have a plan B. Right. Right. It, it, you know, it, if you can't touch it, if you can't put it into your hands specifically, it, you know, um, I had a lot of buddies who got into Bitcoin early on and, you know, several of them who I had a, a few that got out of it too early, too. And then I had a few that that ended up doing very, very well on it. And, um, you know, the thing to remember, though, is that it's an artificial manipulation. They they say and and I've heard all those same arguments that that you pointed out. Um, You know, there's a lot of folks in the libertarian community that are real strong on cryptocurrency. And all those arguments are valid. But the, the, the same argument that they're making could also be said for precious metals. And, um, you know, I, I would much rather have a physical store of wealth and a physical currency that I can touch that doesn't require a power source um, to, to maintain its intrinsic value. It just seems a, a little bit more stable to me. Right. Yeah, I agree. I mean, when you're, you know, when scenarios are very much on the table where all the infrastructure goes down 
anything which relies on that infrastructure is not not trustworthy, not fully trustworthy. Might be one of the things that you have in your arsenal, but it should, certainly shouldn't be the uh, you know the last thing that you're resting upon, in my opinion. Yeah. Well, should you get elected, and you know you you come out on top of the sock puppet Ted Lou, you know, and and we push him out, and eventually we will. Eventually, we're going to get rid of this guy. You know, you're bringing so many people to your cause. You you are a voice for freedom. You're you you know, and I think that it's absolutely incredible what you're doing. Should you get elected, what measures would you take to bolster our cybersecurity and the defense of the United States? Well, that's a bit of a tough question because I think a big part of the problem is actually not even technical in nature. Uh, I think a lot of the problem is just the the level of overall infiltration because you can propose all the um, you know all the technical solutions to cybersecurity vulnerability that you want. But if at the top of the government and business hierarchies, people are compromised, whether it's by you know some kind of Epstein style blackmail ring or just good old fashioned bribery or whatever it is, um, then there are going to be there are going to be holes because there are allowed to be holes. Um, now that said, I do think that we need to do more to move um, a lot of the the high tech manufacturing and software design back to the United States. Um, you know, so advanced chip design and uh, you know core security updates and things like that. You know, we we can't have that uh, happening in foreign countries that are known to uh, manipulate the United States and and sometimes be opposed to our interests. Um, so as far as, you know, it's hard to say exactly what we'd be able to do because that's an issue that we'd have to get traction on before, you know, Congress is going to be able to do anything. And I think a lot of the people in Congress, first and foremost, need to be educated about the issue. And a lot of them are probably compromised in these same ways. So that might be something that we would have to do first, you know, just by getting somebody in who cares about that issue and is willing to carry the football and put it on the table we could start to get those discussions and start to educate the other members of Congress uh, so that we can we can start to move the ball on it. Uh, but yeah, I think bringing things back to the United States and then just general, you know, anti-corruption efforts to ensure that, uh, you know, it's because that that's not really a special kind of corruption. It's the same, you know, the same kind of corruption and compromise that we see elsewhere throughout the political and business establishment. Yeah, amen. You know, and, and and I think bringing the chip manufacturing back, as you pointed out, is the biggest one. Um, that that is without a doubt the the biggest dumbest move we made was to outsource the manufacturing of chip production, and we're seeing that now. We're seeing it with the automotive industry in particular. It's very dramatic uh, to see whole parking lots full of brand new cars can't move them. Because you don't have the TCM chips, you don't have the ECM chips, um, you know, the, the modules that actually control the firing order of the engines and, and how your transmission shifts and everything else. And, um, you know, we're seeing that the tech industry is is having a, a pretty severe shortage. I was talking to uh, somebody that works in night vision sales over this past week. And, you know, it's it, they're they're getting in night vision right now because ITT is the big manufacturer of the controlling chips that that goes into both that and thermal you know they're getting in what they have now 
but it's coming in in spurts. It's kind of an all or nothing. You you get an order of 50 in, but then it might be another three or four months before you get anything. And um, I think as, as this thing progresses with Russia, uh, China may be on the move as well. I, personally, my personal assessment is they would be really stupid if they didn't uh, to capitalize on the chaos and move on Taiwan. And if they do that, we're going to be in a bad way when it comes to chip manufacturing and getting it here into the States. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, the situation with Taiwan, and I, I think a lot of people perceive that that threat as well, um, and it's making them nervous and it's causing a lot of people to realize that we need to do something pretty imminently about this. Uh, maybe a little late, although, um, you know, we did, so the House, um, the House and Senate last year well, actually, so I guess it was the Senate last year and the House this year. Uh, they've been collaborating on the CHIPS Act. Um, what is it? It's uh, uh, creating helpful incentives for producing semiconductors. And it's legislation that was designed to incentivize semiconductor uh, manufacturing here in America. Um, now, I haven't delved deeply into the legislation, but it sounds like the House needs to be doing a little bit more to fund that. Uh, there are, uh, they, they could be funneling some more billions of dollars into, um, you know, actually funding the initiatives that were set out in that legislation. Um, so that's something, you know, that's a concrete thing that we can do. Uh, but again, you know, I, I, we're kind of on the back foot now with the timing. This is stuff that we, uh, we should have been paying attention to much sooner. And yeah, now we're, we're playing catch up. Absolutely, brother. Yeah, we I personally I, I think that it I'm an eternal optimist. I mean, I know that that's kind of uh, might be hard for especially some of the newer listeners to to believe out there because we do talk about a lot of uh, serious topics on here. I'm an eternal optimist personally. I, I think that they, it's it's never too late as long as as we're alive. There has never been a more um, capable people on the face of the earth in history than the Americans. When, when the American people come together for a task, you know, remember we, we put people on the moon first. Um, when, when we come together for a task, it's going to get done. We'll get it done. It, now it's going to be a lot of, uh, a, a, a fighting and a, a very hard fight to get to that point. But it's, you know, when the chips are down, excuse the pun, but when the chips are down, you know, Hey, we, we, definitely can buckle down. And I think, brother, that's that's why your message is so critically important out there. So, Magiswelli, uh, tell us real quick, tell Radio Contra how they can follow you, your Substack over there, Twitter, Gab, Getter. What platforms are you on? How can people support your campaign? Sure. So, my Substack is residentvisitor.substack.com. My website is MVJ, so that's my, my initials, MVJ.FYI, as in for your information. Um, I'm on Twitter, uh, at MVJFYI. Uh, um, I'm actually on Truth Social, at MVJ, just getting started over there. That seems pretty promising. Um, now, I will say, you know, one of the things that I, I definitely need, uh, so I'm looking to build my campaign out, my my actual, my staff, you know, volunteers, uh, you know, campaign manager, social media manager, 
Um, and yeah, so a social media manager would definitely be something I could I could use. So if, any, if there's anybody out there who uh, likes what they've heard and would like to help this effort, that's uh, you know you should get in touch with me. That's that's something I could definitely use. Right on, brother. Well, you know we've got an audience here. Radio Contra is, has got an audience that is just exploding. We are currently number three in news commentary on Podbean. Hosted over on our native Podbean, we are beating out Glenn Beck. We're beating out Mark Levin. We're beating out um, everybody else. You know, we've we've got uh, just a couple guys ahead of us in the top 100 podcasts in the rankings. We've got a huge number of followers. We're picking up about 100 a day, and um, we've we've been there. Radio Contra has been there now for. Um, for a while, for about six months or so, we've we've been breaking, uh, really breaking that glass ceiling and and uh, showing the world, you know, what real grassroots action can do. And and uh, I can I can absolutely say with 100% certainty the the quality of individuals that end up coming out to class. I have software engineers like yourself. I have RF engineers. I have medical doctors. I have all sorts of really incredible people that come out to class who you know, are, are listening to Radio Contra. They are reading AmericanPartisan.org. They are following blogs over on Substack. They're hitting up the socials, all of the things. And so I, I don't have any doubt that you're going to have some really awesome people come out of the woodwork. And I know me personally, just like with Diana Plus, I'm going to be stumping for you hard because the more candidates that collectively we're able to field who are grassroots Americans who absolutely love this nation, who are unabashed about their faith, and they tell you where they stand. You know, it, it's it's time to quit tap dancing around, worrying about controversial this or that. It's time to tell the world exactly where you stand on this stuff and stand up for American interests, because we are really too far down the pipe to, to make concessions about where we are in all of that. Pat Swelly, it's been an honor to have you on, brother. Scout, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure to speak with you. Congratulations on the uh, the success and growth of the podcast. It's well-deserved, uh, and I look forward to seeing what comes of this. Thank you very much. God bless you, brother. And to all the audience out there, God bless all of you. Stay safe. Stay optimistic. The world is not as dark of a place as what it seems. There are incredible voices that are growing and allowing their voice in the world to be heard every single day. Make yours heard. Make it count. This is NC Scout out.